0: You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, please make your way to the Gospel according to Luke. Some of you are wondering, are we ever going to go back to Luke after spending so much time there? We took a break during the Advent series and we're returning now to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 together. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to make your way there so that we can read together God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Luke 11, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, Say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation and he said to them which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him friend lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and will he and he will answer him from within Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks him for an egg, give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Well, I believe it's quite obvious what the main topic of the sermon is about today. There's not much need for an introduction today. We are talking about prayer. And here in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we're informed that on a particular occasion, we're not given much details. We're told that after Jesus had finished praying, one of his disciples approached him and asked him, Teach us as your disciples to pray as John, John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. And it appears that Jesus immediately honored that request, and instructed his disciples on how to pray. How to pray as his disciples, and how to pray as children of God. And This morning, as we listen in, as Jesus instructs us on prayer, we're going to learn so much about prayer, and we're going to learn so much about the importance of prayer in the life of a believer. But before we listen in to Jesus teach on prayer, I am aware that no matter how much teaching we receive on prayer, prayer is often hard. Sometimes it feels awkward. And if we're honest, learning to pray is not always as simple and easy as it sounds. I think Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, captures just a glimpse of sometimes why it can be so hard for us to pray. This is what he writes. American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments and production. But prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, Get to work! When we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, and cell phones make free time as busy as work. When we do slow down, we often slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, We're assaulted by what C.S. Lewis calls the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. Then he writes, One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems in our culture unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does and it's quicker and less time consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. As a result, exhortations to pray often don't stick. It is hard in our culture, our American culture that makes it It's so hard to be dependent on God to to come in this morning and to really hear from the Lord what does it mean to pray? Why should we pray? I don't know if you can relate to what Paul Miller said about prayer. Maybe you find it hard to pray. Maybe you feel stuck when you pray. Maybe you start praying and you feel like, uh, what do I say? Next, maybe you're frustrated this morning with your prayer life. If so, take heart. Take heart this morning because today the Lord Jesus Himself wants to remind us of several things. One is that prayer is the privilege, not the burden, of every child of God, it's the privilege, not the burden. It's it's a privilege because of the person and work of Jesus. And here's what happens. When we pray, our zeal for Christ grows. And when we pray, it awakens hope in our heart. That's what the Lord wants us to see this morning. So I want to invite us now to listen in as Jesus gives a masterclass on prayer. Now, instead of going line by line this morning, we're going to take kind of a, a bigger picture, a 30,000 foot view. And if I could summarize all that we just read and all that Jesus just said about prayer, I think there's two things, we, two headings we could put all, of verse, all 13 verses under. Here's, here's our outline for this morning. Jesus is first going to lay out a paradigm for prayer that is shaped by the Gospel. And then Jesus highlights a practice of prayer that is shaped by the Gospel. That's what Jesus is doing here in light of this question by His disciple, teach us to pray. He lays out a paradigm for prayer that's shaped by the gospel, and then He highlights a practice of prayer that is shaped by the gospel. Look again at verse 1. Luke tells us, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, I want us to stop right here for just a moment because I think there's something here that we can move right past and if we do, we, we miss I think the burden of this entire passage. Here, here's the question I, I want us to consider for a moment. Why did this nameless disciple ask Jesus to teach His disciples to pray? Was it Because they didn't know how to pray. They're watching John's disciples. And they're saying, what's that thing they're doing? They bow their head. They close their eyes. They're talking to God. What is that? Is it really that they didn't know how to pray? Or are they asking Jesus to teach them to pray because they know they must pray differently now that He's come into the world? See, we have no reason, if anything, scripture would teach us that would be a nonsensical thought to think the disciples are just standing around it and they've never seen prayer. If you read the Old Testament, it is steeped in prayer. The temple is a place of prayer. They know how to pray. This disciple isn't saying, Jesus, what is this odd thing everybody's doing, closing their eyes and talking to God? No, they're saying, We know how to pray. Like John's disciples knew how to pray. But because John told them the Messiah is coming, he was teaching them how to pray differently. And and, and since we're your disciples, and we know why you've come, we know who you are. How do we pray in light of that? See, that's what's happening here in this text. They're wanting to know how do we pray now that you have come. And listen, this, this has such important implications for how we pray. We can benefit from this passage this morning by learning to pray prayers that are informed by the gospel. That's what this passage is about. It's not just a, a passage about how to pray, it's a, it's a passage about how to pray in light of the gospel. I love how C.J. Mahaney, the a fellow sovereign grace pastor and author in his in his little book, The Cross-Centered Life, he says this. Students of prayer never graduate from the school of the gospel. I love that. If we're going we're gonna to learn to pray, here's the first lesson. Students of prayer never graduate from the school of the gospel. That's a wonderful reminder that we, if we're going to learn to pray better, we're going we're to be motivated to pray. We don't learn to pray by simply thinking about, okay, how do we start? How do we end? What all do we say? What kind of language do we use? Who do we address first? That's all important. The most important thing is that we allow the gospel to shape how we pray. And in order to do that, we, we must learn to pray by fixing our eyes on Christ. So I think we can miss something in this passage And in all the passages that have come before and all the passages that are going to come after Luke more than the other Gospel writers, Mark and Matthew and John, Luke, time after time again, has pointed out that in this particular circumstance, Jesus was alone praying. Why does Luke keep showing us Jesus praying? Is is he doing it simply to say, There's Jesus praying, and He's your example. And if Jesus needed prayer, how much more do you not need prayer? Follow His example. Well, there's a truth to it. If Jesus needed to pray, why shouldn't we feel the need to pray? And He is our example. But I don't think that's the main reason Jesus, Luke, keeps showing Jesus praying alone. I think something bigger is going on here. Each one of these instances, like the one we see Here in chapter 11, verse 1 of Jesus praying alone reminds us, not only is He our example, He's our mediator. He's not just praying so we would say, okay, He prayed, we we know how to pray. Or we should pray. We are reminded of His role. See, if we think about Luke's narrative, everything we talk about in the gospels has to fit into the bigger picture. And what have we seen so far since we began? Even going back to the preface of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. What have we seen that that is true of Jesus? Jesus came to do what according to the gospel of Luke? Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant promises by ushering in a new covenant. If that's true, then we should hear everything Jesus is saying in light of that. That's That's what Jesus is trying to teach His disciples. And that's why this disciple said, Hey Jesus, we see you praying. How do we pray knowing that you are the one who came to fulfill all the promises of God for us? See, when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, he was doing more than just giving them a model prayer to recite. Sadly, that's what's become of the Lord's Prayer. Even in unbelieving circles, you can go to an interfaith prayer meeting and everybody, our Father in heaven, and they recite it. Like it's a mantra. But Jesus was not giving a model prayer to recite. Actually, if we pay careful attention to the Lord's Prayer, we discover He's offering a new paradigm for prayer in which we are to pray in light of the Gospel. That's what He's doing. He's not just saying, hey, here, yeah, okay, thanks, that's a great question, guys. How to pray? Let me, let me give you an outline. Start with my Father. And that's all we do now. We just all hold hands around the dinner table and, and pray the Lord's Prayer. Nothing wrong with that. But That's not what Jesus is doing here. So now I want to kind of look at the 30,000 foot view and see the intentionality and the language Jesus uses here in this text that shows us He's pointing to something greater. Like the Gospel informing how we pray. And He's giving them this new paradigm. Notice how this prayer begins. Father. Father, He tells His disciples to pray this would have been a noticeable shift in the way the Israelites would have prayed. Anybody hearing Jesus t- talk that way, or anybody reading Luke's Gospel, would have immediately said, well, that's not how the average common Jew addresses God. He's Yahweh. He's the one that showed up in a burning bush. He is holy. And Jesus says, here's how you address Him. He's your Father. See, we must not miss what's happening here. It's not common at this time for, for anyone to address God as Father. However, because Jesus, the Son of God, has come to reconcile us to God through His death on the cross, guess what? Those who receive the free offer of the Gospel can address God as Father. And we must not miss this. Because we can call God our Father, you know what that means? We are His children. Well, how did we become His children? We sang about it in the opening song. Ephesians 1, He adopted us. He adopted us. He brought us into His family. Now, if we understand that, this means the Lord's prayer is not a universal prayer prayed by all. This is not a universal prayer prayed by all. No one else can call God Father who does not have Jesus as their Savior and who has not been adopted by God. No, these these words that Jesus teaches His disciples are the words that adopted children get to speak to their God who now they call as their Father. We must not miss how radical this is. The very first thing out of Jesus' mouth. You want to learn how to pray? Call Him Father." Father. I mean, that's like a dump truck just pulled up and just dumped all of this truth that we can just miss. It reminds us that Jesus is speaking of something bigger here. And, and we know that's true. Not just because of what Jesus says at the beginning, but notice how this passage ends. Verse 13 because we're God's adopted children, in light of the atoning work of of Christ, we are given the greatest gift of all. And guess what gift God gives those who ask Him? The Holy Spirit. The presence of God. And here's what we know from the witness of the New Testament. Only those who've experienced genuine conversion are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. See what Jesus is doing here? He's not just giving them some little model prayer to recite. He's answering the question they were asking. In light of your coming, how do we pray? Well, pray. Now in a Trinitarian way, pray to your Father. Because you're His children. And one of the benefits of being His children is He's going to give you the greatest gift of all. His very presence now it's worth it's worth noting that when jesus uttered these words to his disciples that are recorded here in luke 11 and when he said this about the spirit in particular in verse 13 think about this the spirit had not been poured out on his people that would not happen till pentecost see i point out this detail so that we can take into consideration that the lesson on prayer that was spoken by Jesus has a specific redemptive context. When Jesus says this, what has not happened? Jesus is planning to do what? He's planning to accomplish the will of the Father and fulfill all the Old Testament. And guess what? Up to this point, there's been no crucifixion, no resurrection, no ascension, and no giving of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we we, we must remember that Jesus is is bridging this gap between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Things are about to take place that should inform the way His disciples are to understand prayer. And if we just remember where this chapter falls in relation to the Gospel of Luke, you remember what happened in chapter 9, verse 51? Something decisive took place. At that point, we're told by Luke that Jesus said, guys, it's time to go to Jerusalem. Everything we read from chapter 9, verse 51, until we arrive in Jerusalem in chapter 19, we must not rem- forget. Everything Jesus is saying, including what he's saying about prayer, must be heard and understood in light of his Jesus is teaching them. He's on his way to Calvary. So oh, you want to know how to pray? As I make my way to Jerusalem where I am going to die for your sins and atone for your sins. Yeah, I'll, I'll teach you how to pray. I'll teach you how to pray in this way. And when we actually look at what Jesus taught his disciples to do, we're not going to go Line for line here today. But but if we do look at what Jesus told His disciples to pray, He says, Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Notice what's happening in this little paradigm-shifting prayer Jesus is giving His disciples. He's teaching them to petition God to do the work of His kingdom. Did you notice every bit of, of the Lord's prayer is His disciples petitioning God? Which means everything they're asking, only God can do. You're to come to God, Jesus is basically showing them, come to God, Ask Him to do the work of His kingdom. Accomplish what only He can do. That's how we are to pray as His children. Which means, get this. If we understand that we can only pray because we're children of God adopted by God, because of the finished work of Jesus. And we have the Spirit of God, therefore we can approach God with freedom and confidence. And even when our words are muddled, we're told in Romans 8, the Spirit even knows what to say when we don't know what to say. When we pray, we're not just praying, Lord, help me on my test. Lord, help me in this moment. Nothing wrong with that. No, when we're praying, informed by what Jesus says, we're realizing that we're petitioning God to do His kingdom work here on earth. Therefore, prayer is the privilege of every Christian because it allows us to participate in the work of the kingdom. Is that how you view prayer? Prayer allows you and I to participate in the work of the kingdom. God is the only one that can answer these prayers. Which means only God can fulfill this work. But we get to play a part. I thought about this this week, how to illustrate this point. And I want to share an illustration that I, I think makes this point, but no illustration is perfect. And I know that by sharing this illustration, you know what right now is on the forefront of my mind because it's football season and it's playoff season. And as a Cowboys fan who has been disappointed so many years, and I still may be be disappointed by the end of the night, Uh, here's my illustration. It's a football illustration. Have you ever paid attention to that guy on the sideline who usually stands by the coach? He's not a coach. Sometimes the coaches do this. He's not a coach, but he stands by the coach, and he makes signals. When it's time to call a play, he like touches his chin, touches his head, gives them all you know, numbers and signs and all that. He's telling them what play there is. Have you ever seen that guy? He's over there and he's making, sometimes they even put two so you, the other side doesn't know which, which guy's calling the signals. But think about that guy. He's not calling the place. He's not executing the place. He's just signaling what the play will be. Sign me up for that job. But that's what this guy gets to do. Imagine for just a moment. Imagine being that guy. Not only do you get paid to do this, imagine that you are part of one of the greatest football dynasties ever. You get to call the signals for one of the greatest teams in NFL history. And, and the coach who calls the plays, they're saying he's probably one of the greatest coaches that has ever coached the game. You get to stand by him and call the signals. And they're saying that most of the starting lineup, both offense and defense, these are just future Hall of Famers. Go ahead and call Canton now and put their name in. These guys are top notch. And here you are, Sunday after Sunday, a front row view of all the action. You're not calling the place. You're not executing the place. But every time you call a play and it works and they score, guess what you do? You jump up and down though you did nothing but make some funny signs and you're just as thrilled as the guy that ran the ball down the field or the guy that came in and sacked the quarterback, knocked the ball out of his hand, one of the other defensive players picks it up, runs it for a touchdown and you're jumping up and down like you did it. Friends, that's what prayer is like. Prayer is like signaling the plays on the sidelines. God, God is the one who's come up with the plan. He's got the plan of redemption. We're, we're not calling any plays. He's already called them and they're perfect. And guess what? We're not even on the field because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are executing the plan with precision. And Guess what we get to do? We just get to stand there and call in the plays. That's what prayer is. We have the privilege of signaling the plays through prayer. In other words, here's why this is so good and so helpful. And hopefully it, it makes you want to pray. You know what prayer allows us to do? It allows us to get off the bench and get in the game. It allows us to get off the bench and get in the game. Which means that if you and I are neglecting to pray, we will feel disconnected from the work of redemption that's taking place all around us. See, prayer is a gift to us, and not just a burden. That's not just something we're supposed to do, because we're a Christian. It's a privilege. We get to call God our Father because of not anything we've done, but He has adopted us. He has paid the price so that we can come before His throne with freedom and confidence, and we get to stand. And watch all the action as God tells us in our headset. Signal this play. And we get to watch God do His work. And you know what happens? When all of a sudden the work is done, we get to jump up and down like we did something. (laughs) We get to get just as excited as if we had the uniform on and we were out there doing all the work. See, but when we fail to pray, we often feel like we're sitting on the bench. We often feel like our faith is only relevant on Sundays, or in times of crisis. But when we pray, here's what happens. When you and I pray, it allows us to be a part of something transcendent, and supernatural. Have you thought about that? When I pray, I'm not just asking God for just something I need. And God is the cosmic genie, and I rub His lamp, and He comes out and grants me my wish. When I pray, God is allowing me to be a part of something bigger than me. And He's doing something I may not see with my eyes, but it's supernatural. Makes you want to pray, doesn't it? But we won't pray. Not only if we don't understand the privilege of prayer, but if we don't believe God will answer our prayers. I mean, do, do we really believe that in our feeble, simple words, that when we speak them wherever we are, that God is really hearing them and he's going to answer them and something is going to happen? Because we won't pray if we're not confident that that's true. That brings us to the second thing we see the practice of prayer that is shaped by the gospel. Notice what Jesus does next. After laying out this new paradigm in which we are to pray as his disciples. Jesus then turns and he gives a parable about prayer, which is meant to encourage his disciples to pray. He teaches them how to pray. Now he wants to motivate them to pray. Look at verses five through eight. He gives them this parable. Which of you has a friend? Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within. Do not bother me, for the door is now shut and my children are are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, in order to understand this parable, Jesus is telling a story that has a context that we're probably not familiar with this is an ancient near eastern context and we must understand the role of hospitality that we see in the old testament and it was true during jesus's day hospitality to a to someone who is visiting you wasn't simply a pleasantry it was a necessity when there's not B's and gas stations, and hotels all around. What do you do if you have to make an emergency trip, and you arrive in the middle of the night in a town? Where do you stay? Who feeds you? Guess what you do? You go somewhere to someone's house, hopefully someone you know, that says, hey, I have a friend who stays there. And you go, and you knock on their door, and you say, I need help. Well, Jesus tells this parable of this man who all of a sudden, some friends show up it, late in the, in the, at night or in the morning and he needs three loaves of bread and he doesn't have it himself, but he's not going to turn this guy away. So he goes to his other friend's house and knocks on the door. So that's how that's the context in which Jesus is talking about. There's a second thing we must understand if we're going to understand the, the parable. It's, it's comparison through contrast. There's comparison going on here But it's not comparison of similarity, but comparison of contrast. In other words, Jesus is saying, if a friend met your need because he was reluctant, that's the point. Jesus is saying, if this guy opens up the door and gives you bread, throws it out there and shuts the door, even though he was your friend, he didn't do it because he's your friend. He did it because he was like, this would be shameful, and he's just going to keep knocking. So here, here's your bread. Do you see the point Jesus is making? If if a friend would do that, how much more will God not meet your need? If a friend will will definitely give you what you're asking for, but he may not do it with a happy heart. He may curse your name all the way back to his bed, like, I can't believe he showed up at my house asking for three loaves of bread. But you're going to get what you asked for. But if that's true... Of a friend, how much more will God answer that request of ours? And that's what Jesus then turns to do in verses 9 through 10. He, he then applies this parable. And I tell you ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. See, do you see the point that Jesus just made? He just interpreted the parable. He just let his friend or, or his disciples know their heart towards the Lord. Those who ask of the Lord and seek after the Lord, and those who what? knock on his door, what should they expect? If you were to knock on God's door in the middle of the night with a, with a need, what would you how would you expect him to answer? What would you think would happen if you did that? Would he respond like this, friend? Well, the answer is no. But why? Why can we trust that when we come asking, he will give us what we're asking for? When we come seeking, we'll find. When we knock, he's not just going to throw the bread out, he's going to open up the door and say, Come on in, what are you needing? How do we know that's true? Because of verses 11-13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will, it, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Do you notice what Jesus just did again? Comparison through contrast. Comparison through contrast. This time, he's not using a negative example like this friend who's reluctant. He says, did you notice the word if used a number of times? He says, if, if there was a, just a, a wonderful good father and he has a son who comes and asks him, Dad, would you help me to need? in our home... Dad, we, we, we need some, some bread. We need eggs. Why would that father respond to any other way? If he's a good father, why, why would he not honor that request? And, and, and what son would expect to come to the door, ask his dad for bread, ask his dad for eggs, he goes home with the basket, didn't open it up, he gets home and guess what's in it? A serpent and scorpions. What son would expect that from his good father? And the point Jesus is making If no good father, no earthly father would dare not only not meet the needs of his children, but give them something that would be a joke. Guess what? The best father on the planet is evil compared to the perfect God of the universe. The best father on the planet is nothing. He looks evil compared to to the heart of God. Do you see the point that Jesus is making? If a good father gladly meets the needs of his child, why would a heavenly father not answer us when we pray? The answer is he, he, he won't refuse us. He will answer us. And not only will he meet our temporal needs, like giving us bread for our daily needs, According to verse 13, He will give us the best gift of all. He will give us of Himself. He will give us His presence and His power. Now, what effect should these words from Jesus have on our practice of prayer? How should this cause us to to pray differently? Here's how. We should have expectancy when we pray. The the point that Jesus was saying here was not just simply about perseverance. Persevere, and you'll get what you're asking for. Is Don't you know that if you ask, even if you were to ask your friend who is annoyed to death and finally gives you something, you you go knowing that you're going to receive. We should be people who have expectancy that when we pray, when we pray, God will hear us. He will accomplish His good plan through our prayers. And here's the thing, if we're convinced that the Lord will answer our prayers, shouldn't that cause us to live with hope in this world? No matter what we heard on the news, no matter what report we received from a friend or a family member, if we really get that when we ask our Father for anything, He will answer. That should keep us from cynicism, right? The world is going to hell in a handbasket, really. Our God's doing nothing. Oh, I think His work is being done, and prayer allows us to to not just. Lose sight of that and become cynical and hard and lose hope. Think think about the Lord's prayer now. When when we pray it in light of what we just heard. We pray it with a posture of our God who has made us His children and we get to call Him Father. He's going to answer us when we come in His name because of the finished work of Jesus. Think about how, how we get to pray now. We're told to pray, hallowed be Your name. You know what scripture tells us god will be exalted on earth the book of habakkuk said that one day the glory of god will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea so we're not praying oh how would be your name oh i hope i hope it's made great no we're praying we're calling the place lord you and your glory will be so great it will fill one day the corner of every earth, of every part of the earth. Or when we pray in light of Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, or well before that, when we pray, God's kingdom come. What are we asking when we say your kingdom come? First of all, we remember that Jesus, as we've heard already and we're going to hear again next week, Jesus has brought the kingdom. And when He comes again, it will come in its fullness. So once again, we're not Crossing our fingers, saying, Oh, may your kingdom come. We're looking at Jesus and saying, Oh, your kingdom has come and it will come in its fullness when you come again. And when we pray in light of the larger version of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's Gospel, and we pray, May your will be done. You know what we're saying by may your will be done? May your promises that you've made throughout Scripture, may they be accomplished. And here's what we know from the pages of Scripture. Not one of the promises of God will be thwarted. So when we're praying, we're praying with that kind of confidence. And when we pray, provide our daily bread for us, what are we saying? We're joining in with Israel of old, Oh Lord, provide our daily bread as we live in exile. And guess what? God reminds us, I will meet your every need in exile until I bring you to the promised land. I will bring you home. And when we pray, forgive us of our sins. Oh, we know that every sin has been forgiven because Jesus paid them all. When we say, oh Lord, deliver us from temptation. We know that for every child of God, he will deliver us and bring us home. See, the gospel must shape our, our perspective on prayer and our practice of prayer. So going back to that quote, students of prayer never graduate from the school of the gospel. May that be true of us. May we be more motivated to pray in the new year, but not motivated to pray because we simply have to, because it's one of those things we're supposed to do. May we be motivated to pray because we realize what a privilege it is and the role we get to play and the benefit we get to stand on the sideline when the world looks like it is just falling apart and we say, oh no, oh my God is working and I'm just calling the plays. And one day, the game will be over and we know who will be victorious. That's how we should pray. What a joy and a privilege it is when we see prayer that way. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven thank you thank you thank you for allowing us as your children to be given the privilege of coming to you and asking anything of you knowing that though we don't deserve it there is nothing we ask in regards to your kingdom work that you will not you will not accomplish through our prayers so may we be a a congregation that, that asks. And may we be families that, that are devoted to prayer. and May we be people who fight the urge and the environment of the American culture and we slow down. We put away our devices. We take time to pray to You to seek, to ask, to knock. And then maybe we be a people who have a faith and an expectancy that over time, things are going to happen because we've prayed. Make us those kind of people. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for your patience, that though we know we ought to pray, We fail to pray as we ought. Forgive us for that. Give us new, fresh motivation in light of the Savior to pray with greater faith and expectancy in the new year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.